Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Christina Catherine Martinez is a writer, actor, art critic, comedian, and Los Angeles native who was named in 2020 to Vulture's Comedian You Should Know, as well as Time Out LA's Comic to Watch lists. Martinez has performed on FX's late-night showcase Cake and has written for Adult Swim's The Eric Andre Show. She's also the creator and host of the live comedy talk show Aesthetical Relations. Martinez sat down with me to talk about how she got involved in LA's burgeoning clown community and how she separates her outer selves, the art critic from the comedian and the comedian from the clown. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. part of the act is not being ashamed yeah yeah trying to have no have no shame in your game Mm. yeah that's hard because is it difficult because you come you come at it first as a journalist and as a critic yourself so you already know and then you have to you have to overcome that hurdle or is there something else i don't know i'm it's not that I I come to it like I'm a journalist approaching comedy. Um, it really is separate and informed by both. But just as a person and as a woman, there's just, you know, I have, I think through, frankly, just doing stand-up and comedy now for almost eight years, almost. And also then getting into the clown work, Part of it is like I learning to trust just that initial spark or piece of inspiration or inexplicable impulse to do X, Y, or Z, put shrimp Mm -hmm. on my face, like hump this body pillow, make this particular joke. Um, I've gotten better at listening to that, but then immediately after, you know, my my ego, my socialized self kicks in and I'm just like, no, no, like that's not, that's what makes you happy. That's the thing you want to (laughs) do. And it's tricky because I've, you know, a lot of people talk about, Oh, you know, losing your ego and you got to like get rid of your ego self and don't be egotistical. I, it's really sort of having a, what we think of as egotistical when we someone has like, is their ego is too big? It's, it's actually the opposite. It's like their ego is very weak. <laughs> and so they get sort of bandied about too easily. Right. You know, well, the uh, last time, the last time I saw you in person face to face was uh, the last time I went to Los Angeles in February when you were doing an event in character. Mm hmm. Uh, leading a leading a public tour of the yeah. Geffen. So yeah. how did you how did you feel after that? I was kind of in a fugue state. I felt, 
I mean, that's the that's the paradox of, you know, performance is that it's the fundamental tension I have between being a writer and being a performer, which is, you know, the former is sort of predicated on, you know, retaining memories and sensations long enough to record them. But the latter is as the performer, when I really feel like I succeed, or at least I'm very present, it's actually Mm -hmm. makes it almost impossible to really remember what I did. I mean, it was recorded. (laughs) Right. I remember feeling very, very calm and very flat. Like I had just gone through the eye of a storm, but I did feel a lot of, yeah, it was embarrassing. And, but my embarrassment came more from a, the fact that I think a lot of, there were some people who didn't really know that it was a character. So then I was embarrassed thinking that this is what, who people think I really am. (laughs) And then embarrassed that there were some moments when I really did a lot of it was improvised, but a lot of it was just taken from other parts of my act and, and things that I had written. So there were a few moments where I really did just kind of blank out because it was just such an intense, strange thing to do. And so I got embarrassed that I brain farted, but then also was able to use that for the character. Um, And at the end of the day, I didn't, it was hard to know how I felt because it was just such a weird, there wasn't a whole lot of precedent for what I was doing. So like, who's to say what it's supposed to look like when it goes quote unquote, well, they (laughs) literally, I'm doing a, I'm giving a a walkthrough. I'm giving a tour basically of a real art exhibit, not just as a comedian, which has been done before, but as a character and the character actually doesn't get what's what the work is about, but me as a critic does on some level and has to filter that through this character who's quote unquote stupid. And then also, at the end of the day, it needs to be funny because it was actually the artist's idea. She wanted, she had the idea of allowing a comedian to do a walkthrough of the show. Okay. Um, and then I, I pitched it this way because I think she had some, if you had like a, a, a traditional or conventional comic doing that as themselves, it would have been a different thing. But because I'm an actual critic, if I had tried to do that walkthrough as myself and being funny, it would just not be as, you know, it would be right. like a little bit clever and ha ha. But I just felt like to really get at the comedy that I think she was looking for, it's almost like I had to take on this persona of someone who doesn't really get the work, right? It's, especially considering, as I looked around, there were definitely people in that tour group who didn't know that this was not an ordinary tour. Yeah. They didn't know it was like a performance. Yeah. They just thought they were on a tour. That's that make that. And then they're they're watching you and they're going, what, what is this lady is hired by the museum. What, what's happening? That's that added comedy for me as a spectator, knowing what was going on. That blows my mind because to me, that character is such a heightened stereotyped parody. It's crazy to me that anyone would even not knowing would like not get right away that that's a character. Right. There were people there with small children. <laughs> I know I was worried about that, but I was like, this is, this is art. You know, right, we show art- them the statue, statue of David. We can show them this lady talking show- about her, her pussy. 
Just don't show them drag. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've been I've been fascinated with your career for a little while now. Not just because it's fascinating, but also because I am someone who I'm now a comedy critic, but mm-hmm. I did a I did it sort of a in a roundabout way where I was a hard news newspaper reporter mm-hmm. who ended up joining an improv group on the side. And then when my editor, when my editors found out that I was doing comedy at night, sent me on more outrageous stories, mm-hmm. such as uh, I had an editor had me try out for Ringling Brothers one time. And I did improv get- skills are probably improv skills are probably really good skills for a reporter to have. Right. Yeah. But then I became an entertainment reporter and then eventually I dropped performing and just became a critic. So See, I went I'm, the opposite way, so I don't nice. know what so that's that... why I'm fascinated by your journey. So, okay, so I had Frankie Quinonez on the podcast. Going back and looking at his Cholo Fit videos, I noticed a young, short-coiffed Christina Catherine Martinez in the first I was in the original... The original Cholo Fit. Cholo Fit. Actually, before Cholo Fit, there was a... Um, it was a di- slightly different concept that I had a bigger part in. It was called Cholo Whisperer, and it was oh, about no. a, a guy, okay. which is really funny. It was it was basically a riff on um, Dog Whisperer, right? And it was I played part of like a couple that had adopted um, Frankie. It, I, I could see where I guess it didn't. I thought it was hilarious. It was basically like a guy that would you know came to the house and told us like how to like how to like make your cholo feel at home. Mm-hmm. Cholo Whisperer. Yeah. Um, but then Cholo Fit is what really took off. Yeah. I, I mean, that was the first, I think I just met Frankie through doing stand up around town and he asked me to be part of the sketch. And that was the first thing that kind of blew up, you know, like I'm just in the background of that, you know, doing you're, the exercise. Right. You're a student learning, learning how to get Cholo Fit. I had people stop me on the street about that video, <laughs> you know? It was on World Star Hip Hop, and at the time, I was just like, I don't need, I don't need Sundance, I don't need JFL, I don't need Vulture, I don't need any of it. Like, World Star is like, I'm, I've arrived. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So, where were you in your comedy journey at that point? You mentioned very, having met Frankie at the clubs. Very, very early, not at clubs, like at indie shows around town. I think I would have, I would have remembered. That was really early on because I think I would have just started this other job that I had. I was probably like barely a year in. Okay. And intimidates. I think the show that we met at was just some bar show in Silver Lake. But it, I was at the point in my journey where, you know, that was that was the grind for me. It's just going to different bar shows and indie shows and checking things out and trying to get booked on them. You know, I had a whole not system, I guess, but I'd be like, oh, if there's a show that seemed like I wanted to get on it, I would go see it, mm-hmm. say hi, you know, be like, I want to be on your show, blah, blah, blah. Just, I like, was in- just like hundreds of other people. Yeah, I was just on yeah. that's. I was barely a year in and I was just on that grind of like trying to get out of open mics and just onto more booked shows. And, you know, at least uh, in LA, there's lots of levels. So it's just like trying to move from the open mic level to just like indie shows, bar shows, like things like that. What was the impetus? What was that, that first moment that made you even go to the open mics to begin with? 
I was really um, just not, I was going further along in my, in my art. I don't, I don't want to say art career because I'm definitely more, I'm definitely an artist now in a way that I wasn't then, but I was furthering my career in the art world which ostensibly should have made me feel happy or accomplished. And I just wasn't, I was getting further along in writing. And then I was running a gallery, which even if I had never became a performer, I don't think the commercial gallery route, you know, was necessarily my path either, even in the context of the art world. And I, so I started and I realized that, you know, the art world, which is an amazing, crazy, weird, fun place to be and to exist in was just taking up so much of my emotional, intellectual, social life that I wanted to do something creative for myself. So I just started taking, actually, I ran into a friend from high school because I did a lot of theater in high school, but also carried the idea that like, that's not something that I could do seriously. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You grew up in a- LA, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I ran into a friend from high school, just on the street, a guy that was very, he's very talented that I did a lot of theater with in high school. And he continued on and he's a working actor now. And I was just telling him about what I was doing. And it's funny because he was so shocked that I was an art critic, which was, you know, not <laughs> what anyone in high school would have imagined me as, you know, I was just like a crazy theater girl. And then he was like, Oh, you should, you know, you're so funny though. Like you should get into like maybe just improv or something. Like, I don't know. It might, and I was like, yeah, you know, that sounds fun. So I started taking improv classes at IO West just for me. I just thought that I just felt like I needed some, some sort of creative outlet that was very low stakes that had nothing to do with the art world. And that could just be something for me. And I was still in denial about what I what I really wanted because I was like, okay, well, this will just be a little outlet to get my yayas out. That way, I could, you know, be a serious uh, writer, art writer. Mm-hmm. And I went through the whole pro- <laughs> I went through the whole program. I got on a house team, and then at the I was still, uh, you know, working as a director of this international art gallery, trying to squeeze in being on a herald uh, a house herald team at io which is you know a a lot of work because it's at least two nights you know you have your weekly show and then you have your practice and then you have to like just and then i'm just trying to wrangle being in the same place every week with like eight other people who are are trying to be actors and who generally work at night and i have these social obligations connected to being a gallery director being at openings you know it was just a lot. I had so much fun and I was a good improviser, but I think like my team felt it and a lot of people felt it. And I got, um, I will never forget this. This pissed me off so much. I had a lot of clashes with sort of the, the culture of, of improv. And I, and because at the time it was for me, like just a way to have fun. It was really hard to have fun with people who were also trying to be actors and comedians and brought a lot of stakes you know some of the best improvisers i've ever worked with were people who are just like doctors or had day jobs and were doing it for fun because i'm like this is it this is all i'm getting out of it so i want this to be nice and it just felt like that was going against all this weird weird shit everyone else was bringing to it finally some there was a guy on my improv team who like asked me out for a drink you know we had never really hung out outside of our team and i thought like, oh, okay, cool. Like, we're going to be friends or maybe he's asking me on a date. I'm not sure what's going on, but like, yay, this is nice. Mm-hmm. 
he, <laughs> he like sat me down. We had our drinks and he's like, um, thank you for meeting me. You know, I just wanted to talk about, you know, um, your commitment to the team and that like, you know, you're so talented mm-hmm. and I love having you, but it's like, you know, just really need you to step it up in terms of, you know, you miss these practices. This is, he's not even our coach. He's just another guy on the team. <laughs> Ask me out. For drinks. For drinks. And I'm like, oh, this could be a date. No big deal. Either way, just like I was excited that we were mm-hmm. like now that we were at least going to be friends. And I'm like, he's shaming me for not being dedicated enough to this team. And I'm like, motherfucker, like I have a a job, like a real career. And I'm like, <laughs> they want to, I was like being in my mind, I was like being really bitchy and pulling rank. Like I just, I oversee the transport of priceless artworks like i sell things that cost millions of dollars and who the fuck are you i I just checked out because in general it's like you don't get like this is not for you know it was like this is supposed to be fun and Mm. you're making it a bummer and then shortly after i got kicked off of the team and they were like oh i i talked to the it was such a such a thing it's just really funny (laughs) The creative director of IO at the time, I don't even remember his name. You know, we had this, it just felt very strange to me. I think by this time I was like, I had left that other job and I was working at a startup, you know, I had already been fired from that other job and my art world job and was working at a startup. And I just like, um, I don't know. It just felt like there was this big disconnect between how, serious everyone was taking it and what I was getting out of it you know and they were like well you know this is not a right I felt like I was getting fired from a tech company they kind of gave me this long like this is not very maybe just a good fit you know the dynamic is off Mm -hmm. but we're going to put you on probation and then in six months you can try out for another team my god and I was just done I mean I'd I I got a lot out of it because I hadn't really had any kind of comedy or improv training since high school. So, I mean, it, it did help me become, you know, set the foundation for me to be a better, a better actor and a better performer. But I was just like, you know what? I says like, thank you for everything, but like, I'm going to just forget it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go try doing like a form of comedy that will be logistically <laughs> easier and that maybe people will come see, you know? Right. I literally started doing stand-up because I just logistically couldn't deal logistically, culturally, spiritually couldn't deal with improv anymore. Cause I'm like, well, at least, you know, stand-up is something I can do by myself and there's open mics all the time. And I just Googled open mics and I started doing that. And it was, you know, I can't quite remember. I think it was only a few mics in, you know, cause I'm not an idiot. And improv did help, at least in terms of stage presence. So I think like, yeah, I think I was barely just like two mics in and I was like, oh my God, like, yeah, this is, this is it. Like, this is where I want to be. How long after that, before you made the the short film with Josh Fadum? Well, that was very short. That was very shortly after that. Yeah, that was pretty early on. You know, I, I really, one, once I made that commitment, 
because I think I, I trying to think of the timeline here. I was still doing improv. I was kind of doing both, like trying to do improv and then kind of going to some open mics when I got fired from my gallery job because it was clear to them I wasn't actually committed to being a gallery director. So then I had my first year of doing stand-up. I was fortunate enough. I was on unemployment. So I mm. really, really, I I made it a point to treat stand-up like it was a job while I was on unemployment. So the first year I was going really hard. I was doing mics all the time, going to a lot of shows, which you need. I mean, it wasn't work in the sense that like I, it was difficult, but I really loved it. Short with Josh, I think was shortly after, um, because I realized I wanted, to, I wanted to make videos. I wanted to make movies. And I remember thinking like, Oh, I want to make a sketch, but I didn't have anything. I had, I had an iPhone six. I was like, well, you know, there's, apps you can it has a camera on it mm-hmm. uh, but then i realized that like oh there's no this the sound is so bad on an iphone and i don't really have any way of, i have no idea how to make that better or what that even looks like you know so i'm like well then okay it's a silent film you know and then i crafted this whole idea around like a silent film around this girl in her jacket and then i just asked josh to be on it because i he i had done a couple shows with him he didn't, I didn't know him very well, but he was very sweet. And I was, I promised him, I was like, I, I was very specific in my ask. I said, this is the short. This is what I want to film with you. We will meet here. I knew it was in the neighborhood. He lived close by at the time. Like it will take like an hour or less mm-hmm. to get your part down. She was like, yes. And I was so grateful and so thankful. And I think Josh is such a great, great artist and a good guy. He was like, yeah, I like that you was like, I respect people who do stuff and I like what you do. And I like that you're just like out there getting it done. So I'm like happy to collaborate or or help you if I can. Right. It, it's everything about what I'm doing now just became everything that I've learned about being an actor or a filmmaker, or especially as I'm getting more into that side of things. It's just been trial by error and everything that I've made along the way has been me trying to learn or figure out a specific problem or aspect of filmmaking. And that first one, for sure, every creative choice in that, in that short, which I don't even think is great. I mean, it's like, I was trying to figure out how to make a comedy sketch and it doesn't really, it's like seven minutes, which is way too long. It's like kind of edited. It's like not that, funny and but you know everything about every creative choice in there was was in response to a creative limitation so I've just been like learning how to make things in response to what I don't know and then trying Mm. to figure out the next thing that I don't know and the next thing that I don't know okay and now I'm I'm directing the next Avengers movie so it it really it really can go from there yeah you just have to yes and your way to the to the top um (laughs) josh is a bit of a clown but he's not a clown clown i think he's the i think he's one of like the purest clowns i've ever met and he just doesn't need any uh he he's he's ready made he's fully cooked he doesn't (laughs) need to be labeled or part of the community or to go through any kind of system of training in order to to be that I guess I was I was trying to get into how you fell in 
with the clown crew mm-hmm. of Los Angeles. Is there a formal name for the for the group or there's a lot of um yeah. I mean the thing about the clown scene, it's not a word I thought would ever come out of my mouth. I know. And all of a sudden, it's pretty expansive. There's the clown school, there's, you know, the scene that's gathered around the Elysian, there's PDA, which is another performance space in Altadena, there's um, Wet the Hippo, which is more like idiot work, and not to get into the semantics of different types of, like, clown, but our group right now is, we would just be called Clown Zoo, I suppose, and that came together under um, my clown, my first clown teacher, Phil Burgers, a.k.a. Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown, yeah. This was still, yeah, like six or seven years ago. I was like maybe two years into stand-up, getting better, I think. You know, just that first year of just doing it so nonstop really helped. And I had no conception of, of other than sketch, improv, you know, stand-up. I had no conception of what, like, live comedy could be. So I was kind of doing weird stuff, but still just, you know, doing it at bars and open mics and whatever show I could. And I did a show at Lyric Hyperion and Dr. Brown, who I had no idea who he was. We'd never met. I had no idea who he was at the time, just came up to me and he's, you know, I did a stand-up show, but he was like, Hey, that was pretty good. And I said, thanks. And he was like, you know, you got the clown in you. I said, okay. Um, (laughs) And then he said, you know, Oh, you should take, I'm teaching these clown classes. Um, You should take my class. And I was just really intrigued by, Stand-up is, I think it's less so, but I don't think it's a bullshit. I think people, stand-ups have a hard time being giving each other constructive criticism. Like, I really wanted to get better at comedy, and it just felt like, and I think it's fine, you know, in, in stand-up, like, no one will really tell you you did bad. No one will really tell you what's not working. It, and I get it. It's just so fucking hard to do it. And it takes so much to get up there. Like everyone just wants to be encouraging. But I think the description of, of Dr. Brown's class was something like, you know, this workshop is not for everybody because sometimes people think I'm mean because I will tell you when something you did is not funny. And if that doesn't work for you, then maybe this workshop isn't for you. But I was actually drawn to the idea of, of him being mean <laughs> Or just someone who would really, who would actually just say, like, if you, this is like, if you don't have a problem admitting that what you did on stage was, was not funny and no one really got it, then you might get something out of this. <laughs> but at the time, you weren't aware of his comedy pedigree. No, I, no. That he had studied in France and that he had, no, won no, big that was in Edinburgh. And yeah, that he's a very important dumbass. <laughs> And that this is a whole other type of comedy discipline that's, you know, important in Europe. It's becoming becoming more important here. So his class was really, really intense. It was like, uh, it wasn't like these, I I do wish there was more like long-term intensive um, clown workshops in LA. I think a lot of them are sort of short-term or more introductory. His workshops were like eight, 10 hours a week for like six weeks. And I did them for like two or three years in a row. And then from, from those classes, Phil actually put together the, what I would call the earliest iteration of this group that is now Clown Zoo. 
So Phil kind of Phil kind of put us together just from people being in his different classes. And we had okay. a weekly show at Lyric Hyperion for a while. We would do these basically, I would say, clown plays. We had like a weekly show, which was sort of a, you know, a live directed clown show. But instead, but we would actually use that show to generate material that would turn into like a full hour long original play. And then we would have like a short run of the play and then just like start over. So we had this whole system going and then um, we all kind of disbanded during COVID. We'd actually made a series of shorts for FX. There were. Um, the, the two pink doors series. Yeah, two pink doors was was Phil's. Phil pitched that to FX. Okay. Uh, behind our backs, like we were, <laughs> we were, we were just doing our weekly shows, which were very like. And in my mind, I thought like clown isn't going to do anything for me. But this is like like I'm 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 going to be a stand up. Stand up is what's going to launch my career. But this the clown work is so fun and it's so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And I think it just serves me as a performer in general that I had committed to being in that clown group. It's funny because in the back of my mind, I was like, well, the clown will never go anywhere, but I, I just love it. So I'm going to stay with it. And then out of nowhere, you know, we go in for rehearsal one day and he's like, so, uh, yeah. And he just he basically gave us the pitch that he gave FX was like, yeah, so they said, okay. And like, do you guys, like, does that sound cool to you? Like, do you guys want to make a TV show? We were like, what? <laughs> yes. Um, and then we were, we made a couple rounds of shorts and then like COVID just kind of like made it all, all fart away and disappear. And we kind right. of disbanded. And then Natalie Palamides sort of had the idea, or I think it was Co- actually Corey Podell, who was not originally in our clown group, but Corey is uh, is part of Clown Zoo now. I think the group is the same, except uh, Corey Podell wasn't in it then. Mm-hmm. Um, we just sort of came back together on our own terms to start doing those weekly shows in the park. Okay. So after like a couple years of, you know, like we sort of came together, started doing these weekly shows in the park that sort of, took off because it was during COVID and a silent masked outdoor brunch time um, pandemic era clown show was one of the few performance entertainment opportunities available. And then once performance started coming back, we that's become a monthly show at Elysian. And actually, but the, the core of, of that started with these like weekly free outdoor shows that we do at the, abandoned zoo at griffith park we're actually starting them up next week so uh, i think in the in when in the warmer months or when weather permits like we do want to continue to do those outdoor shows the true clown zoo yeah but that i mean that's why we called it clown zoo it's just it's funny because that trajectory is is so long and when i think about like the magic of our group uh, a lot of it is just that we've just been playing together for so long and it's funny too because I think we have our trajectory as a group, but everyone in the group has their own career as well. And so while this is happening, I'm also still just performing and building my career as a stand-up and an actor and a writer. But it is increasingly stand-up and clown and 
being a critic, you know, I used to try to have these all in very separate funnels and just the more I progress in general, the more these things are just all infect one another. Well, and, you know, rarely, and then once in a while, I really get to do a project that really just puts all that together. And I think what you saw at the museum was one of them because it is basically an act of criticism to be walking through, to do this museum show in this way through this character who has a different point of view. But I also know that it was like dumb as hell. <laughs> um, but that's part of the fun of it. Like, I've- Oh, that's part of the, that's part of the beauty. And it's like, it always feels like my brain and my heart are being like pulled in opposite directions all the time. And I, and I always felt like I had to resolve that in some way. And it's actually, I don't think it's ever going to be resolved. And I think if, if what I do succeeds at all in a way that I appreciate or enjoy, it's, it's just that I'm constantly balancing that, that tension. And also, you know, it takes a, it's so hard to be dumb. I think it's harder to be dumb than be smart to be really like genius, stupid in the way that clowns can be is to me more difficult than, um, taking on than you know being an intellectual <laughs> no i uh which is just a lot of you know memorizing you know having the right references i mean to be crass about it i i think there's definitely such a thing as being a true intellectual but so much of it gets gets watered down to just sort of like sharing the right kind of jargon well, that's why i i uh, when i performed back when i performed i always loved to improv more than stand up because Stand up oh. just felt like memorizing something and trying That's to so funny. I remarks. Yeah. I love I loved doing improv, but just I didn't like the, the community I just I always loved stand up. And I love like still, you know, I do I'm doing the comedy store on Monday, you know. I think I never had that. I think if I ever had a sort of antipathy toward one or the other, it was probably improv. Like even when I was doing it, I was just like, God, stand up is so much cooler. Or I think actually maybe because I am a writer, because even when I was doing improv, I'd still, you know, had this background as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I've been, a, I've been writing, you know, I think a writer is a very, very fundamental core part of just who I am and what I do, even as a performer. So I appreciated stand-up even as a form of writing. It didn't bother me that it's like, oh, this is rehearsed. I'm just like, oh, this is such like, it's so interesting. I thought stand-ups were such great writers and I just liked that there was another way of going about it. Mm-hmm. I always, back when there were newspaper jobs to interview for, I would always <laughs> tell, I would tell editors as soon as I had started doing improv and stand-up that improv changed my reporting style it, it transformed it completely because suddenly yeah. I suddenly I realized that even writing about the city council was writing to an audience. Mm-hmm. And so I had to hold their attention. And the best way to do that was to just let it flow. What's the next thing that happens in the story? Yeah. I yeah. would say um, clown specifically more than st- clown specifically made me a better art critic sort of difficult to explain, but I think a lot of clown has to do with trusting your instincts and, and being as like plain and open and honest as you can Yeah. and being, having fun, you know, in a way I felt so 
I felt like there was some part of myself that I was not being true to by being just an art writer. And then ironically, and I thought that by doing comedy, that was going to be my exit from the art world. Not least of which, because I'm like, there's no way anyone's going to take me seriously as an art critic. If they find out I'm also a comedian, kind of the opposite has happened. It, it, it's interesting that I, th- I think even doing comedy helped me to like stay in love with, with criticism and journalism and even writing in that way, which is, you know, what I still, still uh, a part of like my income and my work and like what I do for a living. Yeah. It's funny. I've, you know, mentioned Natalie, Natalie was on my podcast pre pandemic mm-hmm. and I just get such a kick out of knowing that, most of America only sees Natalie as this uh, progressive insurance character. Mm-hmm. But the ones who get to see her on stage see this maniac who's just like pure chaotic joy. And you get to do that with her and stuff like Swan Leak or. Oh, man. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel very, I feel very lucky. I mean, our, I think our group is like insanely special and it's people who I think we're special because everyone just has a different strength and has different backgrounds. I think I'm the only one who came from stand up or does stand up. But like Natalie's always been a crazy ass. You know, Chad, Chad uh, Max's has like a dance background. Um, Corey's a, like, just there's just a really specific like special alchemy that happens. But, you know, I, it's. And we all do other things that we need to do for for money or to get, you know, and I what I respect about that is that she's just not attached to it. You know, yeah. it's funny having that experience, especially I think most of us in clown zoo, but I think pretty much any actor or comedian in this economy where you have to do, you know, have 20 different income streams or do 80 different things. It's interesting when people only see one part of you and then they see another part. I get that with people who read my work, you know, in a place like the LA times or art forum. Mm -hmm. And then they come see a show and it's like, Oh, I didn't, that's not a side of you that I got at all. When I'm like, well, no, this is a review of a painting show. Like, you know, I have, (laughs) there are some boundaries between these different identities. Right. right. When you see me and Chad wrestling or writhing on stage, that's a different thing. It's a different form. It's that's embodied critique, I would say. Well, also people have this, uh, the art comedy crossover thing is not, you know, particularly unique. I know so many art school kids who became comedians and, you know, performance artists who become comedians. The only thing that's maybe, but I think because of that, people think that I, I mean, I had no like performance chops, I guess, or experience you know, at all in the art world. Like I, um, I mostly specialized in just, you know, painting and sculpture and the plastic arts. So even when I became a performer, I didn't really have a lot of context, even in terms of performance art, which is, you know, now a lot of what people consider, you know, some people to make it easier would just call me a performance artist, which is great. And I fully own that. But it wasn't like, oh, I I came from performance art into performing comedy. It's like, no, I came from just like writing, maybe not knowing anything about performance writ large, into performing comedy. And then that just became this like an 
almost after learning about how to do comedy, then I sort of like went back and like got more into performance art. And then, you know, it all, it all mushes together, you know? Is aesthetical relations the most symbolic meshing of the worlds? Uh Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It combines so much of like my love of performance art. It's comedy. It's sort of weird, critical, cultural commentary, but it just incorporates so much of the things that I love about dressing up like talk shows, you know, comedians making videos and making movies. Cause like, you know, those, those are always incorporated into it. It's funny. Yeah. I just, it's, it's a, it's a Gestamtkunstwerk, if I may, you know, it's just like a total, it's a total work that incorporates it's one of the few types of things that I do that incorporates every aspect of like my brain and body and and performer writer identities um and that's why I've been like getting more into uh, just film filmmaking I mean that show does it but like when I think about making a film that's also another type of project that like incorporates every aspect of my brain and body and performer artist, you know, capabilities or, or, or tendencies, I suppose. Are you actively making films now? I'm, I'm making, I mean, yeah, it's funny. People don't really see my uh, acting work. I've actually made a few films with this artist named Christopher Richmond, um, mm-hmm. but he is an artist. So, you know, his, we made a movie a while ago. It's like a three channel, meaning it plays across three screen so it's more like an installation it's like a three-hour like sci-fi comedy epic but it's owned by the los angeles county museum of art so like no one will ever see it uh we just made another film together (laughs) we just made another film together that i think will be screened definitely in an art context i'm doing less commercial work i don't know if you saw the where's waldo trailer was something that (laughs) it was a it was a fake trailer that I made as like a tiny short film that got incorporated into aesthetical relations but that just got me more excited about um I have a few short films in the pipeline that I'm working to make before the end of the year and writing a screenplay and just you know I've always made films I guess in some way but because I was doing it on my phone just in response to all of these limitations or shortcomings i didn't really think of it that way um right things have come so far since the iphone 6 yeah well also just thinking a little bit more intentionally and expansively like you know i did my first tv writer's room last year and i don't know if the show is greenlit yet so can't really talk about it but the head of development at that network you know was someone that used to work at sundance so they've been sort of helping me figure out how to just like, you know, write a screenplay and apply for these things. And I was very in my head. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not really this. And they were like, look at all of the shit you've made so far. Like you are already making films and it's okay to just sort of like own that and want to learn more and go to the next level. A part of me loves being just really nimble and like making these, these like little things on my phone. But Part of me is also very excited to see what happens if I like just invest the time into trying to get more resources to make things on a bigger scale. We'll see what that looks like or how that pans out. You know, for better or worse, I'm very, very resourceful. I will send you the uh, the Where's Waldo short that 
I made in like a day. <laughs> and people, it's it, it's basically the the joke is that it's a fake trailer for the A twenty four reboot of Where's Waldo. Mm, okay. And I showed it at Aesthetical Relations. I was part of this larger bit where then like I brought Where's Waldo the character out as a guest, but he was hidden in the audience. Naturally. <laughs> so naturally, we had to everyone had to find him. But when I posted the trailer on on Instagram as like mm-hmm. a joke. A lot of people thought it was real that for some reason I was starring in a A24 reboot of Where's Waldo. <laughs> people are still DMing me once in a while. They're like, where can I watch this? Is it streaming somewhere? And I was like, oh my God. It should be. It should be. I mean, this is, this is how things happen. Most of the, most of the good things that I've either created or went for in my life start out as a joke and then. And then against all reason, I I commit to it. Well, Christina Catherine Martinez, whether you're lathered up in condiments or the next host of At Midnight, I I eagerly look forward to seeing you in any and all of your endeavors. Oh, thank you. Very nice talking to you. It's it's my pleasure. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. Theme music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.